trust. I mean, really, when the, when the chips are down and you gotta call on someone, who do you trust? That's, to have someone in your life like that is significant. Someone that you can call on, someone you can rely on. That makes a world of difference. So today we are looking at the whole idea of trust and doubt. How those two tie together. You're listening to Monodia, a worship experience that is specifically catered for your ears. Monodia is both a monologue and a dialogue. And to help me this morning on the dialogue part is our co-host that we stole from A Closer Look, brought her over for today. <laughs> How are you this morning, Charity? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. How was your week? Not too bad. No? Yeah, I hear, I hear uh, you're slowly moving toward the empty nest. Yeah, the oldest son moved out this week. How is that? It's strange. Isn't it? I was actually the girl child, spent the night at a friend's, the spouse oh, were... is in California, and I was in the whole house all by myself. With five dogs, though. Four. Four dogs. Yeah. Wow. The one dog goes to California with him. So how was the so. evening? Much like any other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you kind of like being alone, right? You, you don't I mind do. the quiet time. and I do. It was just odd making sure all the doors were locked and, like, there's no backup. There's no other. Yeah. And then when sounds happen, when the cats are running around, I'm just like, what's happening? It's not Bethany. <laughs> Going back to this idea of, do you have someone in your life that you can trust? Did you notice, if you look back on your life and reflect, to have a best friend, someone that you could trust in, did you notice that that became more difficult the older you got? or? It really did. Um, we had to, once you became an adult, like you had to seek it out. You mm. didn't just like show up at, at school where you had to be, you know, and sometimes you don't want to have close friendships at work because you'd like to keep professional and personal separate. Um, but I did find my best friend at work, so. <laughs> you know, that's really interesting when you think about what you just said is the idea that when you look at individuals in school, your classmates become your friends. Yeah. As you move from school into the workforce, it becomes a little bit difficult because the majority of times, the people you're associating with are your colleagues. Yeah. yeah. So, And in your position with in administration, you're a leader. That makes it even more challenging because how, you really can't become friends with subordinates. My best friend used to work for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that could uh, create some interesting scenarios. Well, we did end up becoming closer friends once she got promoted out of my store. So there's that. But it was also, that came after I had kids. I stayed at home with my kids for the first, uh -huh. like, three years. And that was difficult, too. Like, I'm just in this house with a bunch of little people that are going to take me over. Like, trying um, to find other adults was Yeah, was and, and trust develops over time. Yes. It's not something you can just bam and it's there. It's it takes time and it's quickly lost. Yeah. And what I find is that you can have a relationship with someone, and then something will happen and create a little bit of doubt, and then that doubt, if it's not checked, can just begin to roll. It absolutely does. Yeah. And that's the topic we're going to look at today. Not only trust in relationships we have with other people and the doubts that can arise, but also this whole idea of trusting God. Where does that tie into this? And how does that tie in to the Hebrew Bible, to a specifically the book of Genesis and what is called the story of the patriarchs? 
We'll be right back after this quick break. Trust me. My daughter was sitting on top of the slide. She was maybe a year and a half. And I said, just trust me. I'll catch you at the bottom. No, daddy, no, no, daddy. Took about a minute to convince her to trust me. And she wasn't sure if, if she could until she got the end of the, the slide. And I remember the smile, the beam that came across her face and she looked at me with this smile and said, more, more, and ran around and up the stairs we went to get to the top of the slide again. For children, if they have loving and caring caregivers or parents, they can make a big difference in their life, this sense of being able to trust. But as Charity and I were talking about, as you get older, we go through experiences, and in those experiences, our trust is broken. And when trust is broken, it creates a sense of doubt in future relationships. There's a hesitancy to move into new relationships because maybe the same thing could happen again. I remember one minister in particular, he said, Tony, trust everyone, but cut the deck. The idea being that you trust everyone, but really you're not. But what happens when that moves into the whole realm of God? God is someone that many individuals are introduced to early on in life. Their image of God, their concept of God is given to them either by their parents, their caregivers, or a spiritual community. And that image that they have, if it's helpful, then it can develop a great sense of trust. But if it's not as helpful and it's harmful to them, then all of a sudden it becomes a question of doubt. But what happens as we move on through life, all of a sudden we realize that those images and concepts of God, our experiences, often we'll call those in question. And that's exactly what happened to Abraham as recorded in the first book of the Hebrew Bible or the Christian Old Testament, Abraham and Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, God chooses and promises to Abraham. He says, leave your country, go forth, and I will make you a great nation. You will prosper under my care. There's no introduction other than God saying, look, this is what I want of you. And Abraham has to have all out trust from the very beginning. Now, maybe things weren't good on the home front. Maybe he didn't enjoy living in Mesopotamia. Maybe he wants something different. Who knows? But the story doesn't give us that information. Instead, all the story says is God says, Abraham, you need to go. And Abraham went. But what happens is in this relationship with Abraham that God has, God does some really quirky things. Things that many of us would call into question, and in fact, Abraham does. What's interesting is in Genesis chapter 15, you get two different pictures that take place. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, God says to Abram in a vision, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. 
What's interesting is in verse 2, Abram says, uh, God, um, what is it, my reward? What are you going to give me? And God says, well, I'm going to give you a child. And Abraham retorts, he says, no, I'm an older man now, and I don't have any children, and all of my possessions will go to Eliezer, one of my servants. He's the next in line. I don't have any male children to give it to. And Abraham is told by God, no, nah, come here, let's go outside and take a look up in the stars. Now look toward the heavens and count the stars. Now, if you're able to count all of them, I want you to know that's how many of your descendants will be. What's fascinating is the narrator of this story in verse 6 adds the following. Then Abram believed in the Lord, and God reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, there's another possibility that some individuals, as far as a translation offer, and they say that then Abram found security in God, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. That verse is used over and over to show in the highest esteem how Abraham is a man of faith. And Abraham becomes this role model for us today, many people will tell us, that we are to trust God, rely on God no matter what. What's fascinating is verse 7. Verse 7, it says, And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. Now, just pause here for a moment. Verses 1 to 5 talk about this idea that God is going to bless Abraham with many, many children. And Abraham says, uh, is that really going to be true? And God says, let's go outside. All that happens. And then the narrator steps in and says, oh, by the way, Abraham believed God. Then the story resumes, the narration resumes in verse 7, where God says, look, not only am I going to give you a bunch of kids, and you're going to have many descendants, but I'm also going to give you all this land. Now, here's what's fascinating. Abraham has just been seen and told that he's going to be this man of faith. But then verse 8, Abraham said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? <laughs> Can you hear this? Abraham says, I don't know, God. God says, oh, I'll take care of it. I'll give you all these descendants. And then all of a sudden, Abraham is to said, oh, yeah, yeah, he's a man of faith. And then God says, I'm going to give you all this land. And Abraham says, uh, uh, how, how will I know? And an element of doubt comes in. So throughout this chapter in verse 15, verses 1 to 8, you get two sides of the coin. On one side, Abraham trusts God. And on the other side, he has doubts. What's interesting is in verse 8. I'm sorry, verse uh, 6. What's interesting here is later on, Jewish writers wanted to make sure that we understood that Abraham had pure faith. And the way they did this was they added in documents called the Targum, they added the following line to verse 6. And it says, And God reckoned to him as righteousness, 
ready for this because he did not raise any objections it's almost like these later writers look back at this story and say uh man may we got to make sure that people don't think abraham had any doubts so we're just going to add this line because he did not raise any objections pretty fascinating huh that we want to remove doubt out of the question and just have pure faith, pure trust. And that's what we must understand is that in Genesis, faith is not some intellectual assent to a series of confessional statements. That has nothing to do with it. Rather, faith is a personal trust and commitment to God. So when people have doubts, today we often talk about those doubts being doubting certain beliefs, confessional statements, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the trinity. Many individuals have questions and doubts around those things. What Genesis, it's not interested in that. What Genesis is interested in, can you trust God? And there's individuals who have doubts about God. But again, the temptation is, is this fine line in balance between trust and doubt. A lot of individuals see it as one small step where all of a sudden they see trust as a way to eliminate questions and quiet the voice of protest. Often in a community, individuals who have doubts about their experience with God, the character of God, even the existence of God, are put to the periphery. Even in the most liberal, progressive churches, there are times when individuals are made to feel like they don't fit in because they have those kinds of doubts. What's fascinating is that in the story of Abraham, that is allowed. One individual says the following, there is in the Abraham tradition, there is no sense to be anything incongruous or incompatible in trusting God and at the same time raising serious questions as to the way in which God seems to operate in the world. Another individual says the following, which I found amazing. He said that faith taken to the, is taken to the point where it contemplates its own demise. There, that's, that's what Abraham's story is all about. And not just Abraham. If you look at Abraham's son, Isaac, and Isaac and Jacob, it, it, this story continues throughout this book of Genesis is this, this tension between faith on the one side and doubt on the other. And in many ways, perhaps you feel that in your own life, this tension between these two. On the one side, you want to trust God, but things happen in your life. People give you ideas of what God is, and that doesn't resonate with you. And all of a sudden, doubt begins to creep in, and if it's God is like that, then what? Why is it that God will answer prayers in this situation, but not in this other situation? And if we don't have the space, if we don't have the room in spiritual communities to allow for doubt to be expressed, then where do people go in order to express those doubts? 
No matter where you are in your journey, I, I hear this a lot. No matter where you are in your journey, you're welcomed here. Really? Really? Are you really welcomed when you have serious doubts? Or is this idea that you can come with your doubts and we'll slowly wean you away from them? Or do we allow space for people to deal with their doubts? That's a question I think that spiritual communities, I don't care what religion, spiritual communities need to be willing to sit with and really wrestle with because more and more young people have these doubts. They're not going away, folks. And if we don't allow room for them, if we cannot empathize with them in their doubts, I really wonder what the future of spiritual communities might end up looking like. Something to ponder and stay tuned because I'm going to be joined by Charity and she's going to tell me where I'm wrong. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I guess it's my turn. Yeah, you know, we during the break, Charity and I were talking, and it's like, uh, we, we do this all the time, it's just not in front of mics. <laughs> I mean, our partners um, have their wine, and Charity and I have our whiskey, and we sit there and, and talk. And so it's basically, for those of you listening in and watching live, or if you're watching this or listening at a later time, Basically, you get to eavesdrop on a typical conversation between Charity and I. 
<laughs> Hopefully you uh, sympathize with us and not our spouses. There you go. <laughs> well, I was thinking on the trust doubt, like a lot of the things that I was brought up with is that doubt is a failure. Mm. Like, um, Do you remember what age you, you heard that? It had to have been young Sunday school. I grew up in Sunday school in the church, and like, you know, this is a test of faith. And it's a test, and adversity is supposed to reveal your character. And wow. the character that was revealed was doubt. And that is a failure. And so when you're taught that as a young child with your faith, when you start to have these questions, you feel like you're failing. I, and that's a first time, and, and again, this is one of the reasons why I enjoy visiting with Charity, is there, there are things that she'll say that it's like, Boop, a light pops on. And, and I think you're right. Think about that terminology. When someone's going through a difficult time, we call it a test of faith. Right. And it's almost as if it's, instead of getting A, B, C, D, or F, it's pass or fail. Right. And even like they put Job up as this wonderful person that passed the faith test. He continued to have faith no matter what happened to him. And he is called like this whole big example of someone who has faith. Yeah. I, I, again, you did it again. Um, to bring Job into the, to the question, and many people think that Job, that was maybe the oldest writing in the entire Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. Okay. And if that's the case, when you think about that, his friends really want him to say, uh, you know, just admit you're wrong. And Job kind of digs in his heels and says, no, I didn't do anything wrong. And he does kind of doubt God. And I love the way the end of, of the book ends with the writer saying, and God looks at him and says, hey, buddy, uh, you were, were you around when all this started? Have you been around as long as I have? Yeah. But the question then is you raised, Job kind of bows down to, at that point. But what happens if an individual can't bow down? What happens if they can't reclaim their faith? Yeah, if there's not some big God saying, hey, by the way, I'm going to do this. You just got to trust me. Like, we don't have that. I mean, we don't know that they did really. But, like, we don't have those things to tell us, like, you're going to be fine. I will figure out how to pay your rent. I will figure out how to put food on the table for your kids. Um, without these conversations, how did they all of a sudden miraculously say, I'm going to believe in this. Do you think it's helpful if we have individuals who step in to try to play the role of God for us? Instead of God, like they, the stories in the Old Testament, God does that directly. But in today, you're right. If someone says, well, oh, I can't say that. I mean, just recently, there was a minister who got up front and said that God told him that there were six witches in his church. And three of them were in worship at that very moment. Mm -hmm. So now there are ministers who claim that God speaks to them directly. And there's, there's whole a, denominations. Yeah, but... and, and there are people that then have serious doubts about that. You know, it does is God still speaking? And if God is still speaking, how come God isn't making it like that obvious? I think that there's always been a way that God has communicated that maybe it wasn't direct. You know, we look at the Old Testament and a lot of them are stories and that's how things have been passed down, are stories. And maybe we don't take it literally. Um, and so maybe God 
gave them a sense of hope or a sense of peace, um, a loss of anxiety about what was going to happen. Like, there are times I am a highly, highly anxious person. Um, but there's times where I will all of a sudden just feel a sense of peace. Mm. And I'll be like, okay, like now I can go on. Like, I have my tattoo. You actually wrote it for me, so it's right in Greek, and it's yeah. not some internet Greek. Um, for First John 4.18, perfect love casts out fear. And the King James Version actually is way worse. <laughs> so I use this as like, love casts out fear. So if I, am I choosing fear or am I choosing love? Because if I choose love, then fear will go, right? And so that's kind of how I looked at it, and that's kind of more modern translations. But in the King James Version, it says, perfect love casteth out fear. He who fears has not been made perfect in love. Wow. Then you get the guilt for being... If you're afraid or anxious, then you haven't been made perfect. And some people will add that yet on the end. Which is fascinating, Charity, that... Read, read that last part again. He who fears has not been made perfect in love. In some ways, then, I think for, I know, well, I shouldn't say, I can't assume what other people are thinking, so I'll just speak for myself. I, there was a time in my life where I had doubts, and I continue to have doubts, so I can't, I should say. <laughs> I was going to say, that's ongoing. <laughs> yeah. There was a time, I remember when those dark doubts really became prevalent in my life. And when those doubts begin to take place, I felt kind of like I was failing, and it did produce fear, because yeah. there was a fear of being wrong. And I remember talking to a friend of mine one time that he said there were certain beliefs. That was interesting is we weren't talking about a relationship as far as trusting in God. He said there were certain beliefs that he had that he began to doubt, and when he began to doubt those beliefs, he was afraid because of the consequences of getting it wrong. So yeah. doubt often is tied with fear, but you mentioned this idea that love kind of casts that away. It, can you elaborate on that a little bit more? What role do you see love playing with casting out fear and perhaps even doubt? For me, or it, tolerating doubt. In my life, it mainly transfers as um, control is not love. Mm. Um, I get anxious about my children, the safety of people around me, and I have to evaluate whether my actions or my saying no or my doubting whether or not I should let my daughter go do X, Y, Z. Is that because I'm afraid? Or is it because, or am I like controlling her? Or do I have an actual reason? And so it helps me kind of evaluate where I'm at and how I'm making decisions based on the people around me. Cause, so I'm not like pulling them in and controlling them. Um, but I think, you know, how old is Genesis? Right? Yeah. Centuries? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so these people are going on things that they don't know what we know. And science continues to make new discoveries even now, yet we are supposed to not ever question mm. the faith mm. of people from mm. centuries ago that did not have what we have. Do you see science creating 
doubts within some spiritual people. I think so, and I think that's also why we start to see these extremes where people are going, it's literal, I'm holding on to it, you can't tell me different. So I've been watching this really awful show on um, <laughs> Netflix. So why are you watching it? <laughs> um, it's called Love is Blind, it's the second season. And there was, they meet in pods, they get to know each other, and they get engaged before they ever see each other. So there was one girl, and she's a Christian, and the person that she's interested in is an atheist. Mm. And then they go and they, you know, they get out, they get engaged. Um, she bails and then they get back together and then they're meeting his or her family. And then he's an atheist and he's like, I will listen to you. But she would not even open up the door to have a conversation the other way. And it was almost like they doubled down mm. on not having doubt and not questioning. My faith is proven by the fact that I don't ask questions and I don't listen to you. And that would go back to this whole idea of fear. Yeah. What ultimately then with this idea of faith and trust in God versus allowing elements, I shouldn't even say versus, and doubt, what is it about doubt that we're afraid of? Ultimately, are we afraid of God? That if we doubt God, that somehow we're going to end up on the wrong side of things? I think a lot of people place their own identity in their religious beliefs and how they see God, how they relate to God. And I know that in my own faith, for me, what was scary is once you realize one thing, then it starts tumbling, right? So um, it's like I've likened it often to pulling the string on a sweater. Yes. And so I have built my whole identity around what my relationship to God is and what I believe about God. If that changes, who am I? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. We're going to take a quick break, just 10-second break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about not only pulling the string, but going down the slippery slope. We'll be right back. The Christian tradition I grew up in was fundamental. And there was one of the individuals who was highly seen, and for some individuals seen actually as a prophet. One of the things they said is that as soon as you begin to question doubt, you will go down the slippery slope. Yeah. And I think this element of like, if I begin to question, then I'm gonna go, walk, go away. And that has not only intellectual repercussions, but it has a lot of emotional reper repercussions. Yeah. If, you're, if your sense of security has been built upon this trusting relationship with God, and then you begin to see the other side of faith, which is doubt, then all of a sudden your image, like you were just saying, your image of God begins to shift. Right. That's hard for people. That's really hard because now instead of having this God they can trust in, they've got doubts that come with that. And it, it, I think it leaves a lot of people with turmoil. It also, I think, makes you start to question the people around you. So I grew up in an evangelical, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Calvary Chapel type, uh, John MacArthur, James Dobson were my father's heroes. <laughs> um, still are, scary enough. Um, but as I started 
like have doubts and have questions and see the other side to or the outside i started questioning like at first i felt shame because like i believed them but these were my parents i should be able to believe them i should believe what they tell me and i should be able to trust them and so now what else have they told me that that that's not true what else have these you know i went to a private christian school what did they tell me that what else did they tell me that that's not true i mean my principal was later arrested in in jail for molesting mm. a child like wow. like what else when you have that one thing that and it's like in my tradition i don't know about yours but um you could ask questions but you could only find the answers in the books they provided for you yes and when you start bringing in outside information and it contradicts what's in front of you or like what you see in the world is different than what's in front of you. We see evolution in the world. Well, and to say evolution is yes. baloney, just, it doesn't jive. Yes, well, and think about the role of doubt in evolution. Yeah. I mean, blind faith, blind trust could get you killed real quick. Oh yeah. And so I think in some ways, going back to what you were saying about this element of fear, the anxiety, it has its role in the preservation and the survival of homo sapiens. It needs, it's there. It's just now there's this baggage that's put on top of it. I remember one time feeling the same way when I started reading and I began to, to see things a little differently than I had. And I went and I talked to one of my colleagues when I was a professor at a college and he was in the history department and I asked him, I, I said, well, I, I expressed my frustrations. And I said, why didn't, like you did, I said, why didn't they tell us this? And he looked at me and he said, well, the college you went to, did they have a library? And I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> you know, because ultimately, we can rely upon other people to give us this sense of trust, that to trust in God. And I think a lot of people have their image of God given to them by other people. Absolutely. But to individualize it takes work, it takes time, and it takes going through the process of pain because Absolutely. it means either letting go of or doubling down on some ideas that as they work for you. And if you look at the larger spectrum of Christianity, where we start ultimately becomes kind of our, for a lot of people, it becomes their hub. That's where they stay. So right. it doesn't matter if you're fundamental or if you're progressive, you, that kind of becomes your hub. So if you're a progressive Christian, then you got on one side all these people who are more conservative than you, and then you have all these other people who are more, what would you call their, you know, the atheist, the agnostic on right. the other side, the humanist on the other side of you. And so you're comfortable with that. And that creates this space where trust and your view of God is quite comfortable. But like you're saying is when you hear from either one of those sides, it's probably easier to reject the conservative side, someone who's more conservative than you, where the challenge is, is when someone is throwing something that is maybe a little bit further out than you are, that creates a lot of anxiety for people. And because doubt 
is what creates that anxiety. So how in the world do we ever come to the point where we value doubt? Well, I think that, um, you know, you have to get comfortable in those uncomfortable spaces. They tell you that at the gym. But you know, how? Get comfortable being uncomfortable. I think the most, the best way to do it is to do it. The more you do it, the more you get used to it. So I just started reading last night. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, I'm, okay. gonna, I'm not going to let okay, you go, go into ahead. that other one. I will remember that. But you said something <laughs> that's really powerful about the gym. So when you go to, to lift a weight, let's say you're going to squat something, a uh, particular weight that you've never tried, you're going to max out. Talk to me about the role of the spotter. <laughs> so in a squat... I'm explaining it. Yeah, no, okay, no, no. The those? role of the spotter. Yeah. Um, so the spotter is there, stands behind, kind of with their their arms like ready under yours, and if they wait until you are just not going to stand up, a good spotter will wait till you're like, "Hello, I'm going to fall down if you don't do this," and then they gently, like, just push a little bit, and that's usually all you need, unless you've been stupid and tried to, you know, try something way out of your league. But usually it's just a little boop, and they get you up that little bit. Yeah, see, that, that is so powerful. And I think what I don't want this illustration to go to is this idea that getting to the top, standing back up, is your trust restored. Yeah, because, well, you after you hit that one, you got to hit the next one. Exactly. So it happens again. Like, you keep having to question. Just like with science, they keep questioning. They keep questioning. They find something and then they question more and then they question more and then they test it and then they question more. It's this constant review. So you were, and I interrupted you, but you were gonna it's say okay. something about what you read last night. Uh, I started reading The Body Keeps the Score last night. Okay. It's a book about trauma it's and a, how your body holds it. It's a great book. Um, and just right out from the get-go, it was, whew. You know, I think a lot of people talk about Gen Generation Z and how they're weak and they have all these, you know, mental illnesses. And the author actually attributes it to these generations of keeping these secrets and holding mm. these doubts. That sometime that it compounds because those things stay in your body. They change who you are fundamentally, like in your DNA, and then you pass that on. Add that to a couple generations and you end up with a generation that has five generations of trauma attached to them in their DNA. And so they come out anxious. <laughs> wow. So think about that then as far as imagine if spiritual communities valued faith as, or they doubt, valued doubt as much as they value faith. That would be amazing because I think like there's so many things in a lot of the Christian face about doubt and it's also about not displaying it. And so people hide behind these walls and these perfect veneers and then mm. they come crashing down and then that makes other people doubt even more. Whereas if you were just honest and open and said, I'm having a hard time. I struggle with this, that you are being honest, and then you build trust by showing that vulnerability. I agree. I wonder, going off of what you just shared, if doubt creates emotional angst for us. 
If you're not comfortable with doubt, if that creates this emotional angst, it's in what Christianity would call the dark night of the soul. And it's almost as if we want to get back to that sense of peace. We want to get back to where we were because that's where we felt comfortable. That's where we felt at home. But then when doubt comes in, it does, like you say, create this angst within us. And as you said, we have to learn to just sit with it. And it's easy to try to find it, the escape hatch. And, and we have so many these it. days. Yes. You pick up your phone, you have like this escape hatch to stroll through. Um, if I don't like, if this book starts creating doubts for me, I'll throw, I, I won't read the rest of it if it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. I know we've talked in the past about Eric Elness and his book, Gifts of the Dark Wood. Yeah. And I think it explains so well what going through that means. And sometimes you have to sit with it, but it's also a journey through it. It's the, you know, princess bride, you know, forest that you have to make it through it to mm -hmm. the other side. And on the other side, there's more challenges, but like you have to go through the process. And I think that's where the writers of the New Testament, in particular, let's say the writer of the Gospel of John, he, he really emphasizes this idea that God is love. And not yeah. only in the gospel, but also in the epistles of John. I think if we really believed that, that this, that love is, is the essence of what God is, or maybe it's just, maybe they're synonyms. Love and God are one and the same. Right. That if we really accept love, then it doesn't matter how much doubt or how little doubt or how much faith or how little faith I have in my life. And I think then you know that no matter what happens, you're okay. And that comes into me the form of self-acceptance, that if I'm willing to accept myself, yeah. and ultimately that means that if God is love, then if I love myself, then I am in harmony with God. If, yeah. God, if God is love, if God is not a being, but if, if love and God are, are this, then, yeah, then how we experience God is through moments of love. Yeah. And, and love isn't always ooey-gooey either. <laughs> I mean, as much as I disliked, and I don't like the way he used it, but the two words that he put together, uh, James Dobson, when he put those two words together, tough love, I think he was right because there are times when we have experiences where life is hard, but that doesn't mean we're not loved. Right. And how we treat other people sometimes by drawing boundaries and saying, these are my boundaries and I'm asking you to respect them. And that creates difficulty for someone on the other side. Well, that's love. I agree. And I think that if we look at it that way and we realize that we have doubts and that's who we are and we have questions and we are fearful or we're anxious, like and God loves something that's imperfect mm. and that's okay. Yes. And I think in many ways when a child, as it grows and it develops those doubts, that really could be something that we celebrate as spiritual communities as a child moves into those years of 
beyond adolescence into those teen years where they begin to kind of think for themselves and on into college, maybe that's where we really ought to celebrate that the, these individuals' doubt is becoming a part of their life. Well, the schools have now started, at least my daughter's school, a new grading system where if they take a test, <coughs> excuse me, and they don't do well on the test, they can take it as many times as they want until they get a grade that they want. And in our like preschool, whatever like meeting, the science teacher was very upset about this. This isn't gonna teach them real life. And I'm like, your job isn't to teach them real life, it's to teach them science. Mm. And how many times does it take them to get to know that? And so the grading system before was if you fail a test, you fail the test, you don't know it and you, you move on to the next thing or you don't understand the foundational concepts to build onto it. And so now they're starting to realize because we have not allowed people to fail and then try again and fail and learn and fail and go that we have this whole generation of people I know in my life that I cheated all the way through geometry because I don't understand it, but it wasn't acceptable to fail. It wasn't acceptable to not understand. And maybe if we could even remove, in the realm of Christianity, remove the word fail in the sense that if you have faith, you're not a failure. If you have doubt, you're not a failure. This isn't a test of faith. This is just living. And yeah. in living, you're going just like Abraham and the person who tells these stories about Abraham, he allowed those two to reside and they both have value in the story. Faith and doubt are both to be valued. Agreed. Okay, thank you for your time with us. Uh, for those of you who would like, we have a special meditation that is going to immediately follow after we sign off. For those of you who are listening to the podcast, maybe perhaps you're driving or you're working out or you're out walking, if this isn't a convenient time to listen to that, then you can always come back and listen to this meditation a little bit. Again, Monodia, it is a worship experience for your ears. We'll see you in two weeks. Take care. breathing or releasing stress breath. Box breathing, also known as square breathing, is a technique used when taking slow, deep breaths, and it is a powerful stress reliever. It is also called four square breathing. Before you get started, Make sure that you are seated in a comfortable chair with your feet flat on the floor, keeping your hands relaxed on your lap with your palms facing up. Focus on your posture. 
you should be sitting up straight because this is what will help you take deep breaths. Sitting upright, slowly exhale through your mouth, getting all the oxygen out of your lungs. Focus on this intention and be conscious of what you're doing.